This week's episode is brought to you by Honeywell. Honeywell is a Fortune 100 technology company with operations in more than 75 countries. Building owners and operators in the education sector, use Honeywell's hardware, software, and analytics to help create safe, efficient, and productive facilities. Honeywell's solutions and services are used in more than 10 million buildings, including schools, worldwide. Visit www.honeywell.com to learn how Honeywell partners with schools and higher ed institutions to improve safety, security, and sustainability on campus. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. What if you could snap your fingers and travel 20 years into the future and visit a model high school of that time? What might it look like? After all, American public high schools that we have today, they're a product of their time. And they were invented back in about 1821. But in this era of rapid technological change, with artificial intelligence and and robots moving into more aspects of work and life, Maybe these next couple decades should be a big moment of change for the way teaching and learning is done at this critical stage of education. That's the premise of a recent book called Running with Robots, The American High School's Third Century. The book gives a guided tour of an imagined school of the year 2040. And the authors who are the guides giving this tour, they've been watching education change for decades. One has led educational institutions. I'm Jim Tracy. I um, had a career running schools and um, was a college president toward the end of that career. And I'm uh, currently, for the last few years, senior advisor to the executive team at Jobs for the Future. And the other has been reporting on education for various news outlets. I'm Greg Toppo. I'm a longtime journalist, uh, mostly covered education in my career. Surprisingly, these future-looking experts don't talk that much about robots in the book or about other high-tech tools. They instead focus on how coming technological change may end up shifting the relationships between people and machines and therefore between students and teachers. But while the book paints an idealized, sometimes utopian picture of this high school of tomorrow, I was surprised in my conversation with these authors that they think it will take some work and leadership and real effort to avoid some possible downsides of this tech, even though they think it could enrich schools and learning. I started by asking the authors, starting with Greg Tapo, if we joined a tour of this futuristic high school they describe, what's the biggest difference that we might notice? Even though we are sort of obsessed with this idea that technology is going to be um, a big deal in future high schools, that the humanities um, will play a bigger role than they, de- they even do now. And we need people to sort of see that before they see anything. Jim has a different take, I'm sure, but that was my kind of number one takeaway. Uh, no, no I, I heartily concur with everything you said. And, and I also just would add to that that, you know, one of the things that strikes me about this future is that the, um, the technology has... Um, become integrated into the creative processes of students. So the technology has allowed um, kind of a recapitulation of um, Deweyan constructivism uh, so that the students are driving their own 
learning, following their own passions in any direction that it brings them. And the technology allows that interface with their classroom sort of laboratory to be infinitely malleable. Um, but having said that too, uh, one of the revelations for our chief protagonist at the end is when his guide, you know, his Virgil, uh, but in this case, not through the lower circles of hell, but maybe in, into the, you know, into the, um, <clears throat> maybe his Beatrice, um, <clears throat> you know, explains to him that learned teachers, master teachers are more central than ever because the landscape is so infinitely malleable, um, the teachers become even more central, the, pre the presence of a learned guide. Hmm. So you're running with robots. What, why that title for the book? Well, number one, I, I, we love the image that um, sort of counterintuitive to, I think, what so many people are fearful of, <clears throat> this idea that, you know, the, the kind of like received wisdom is that, you know, robots will take our jobs we're, we're going to be sort of left, you know, penniless and jobless and destitute. And, you know, we wanted to kind of flip it and see what the possibilities were. So the idea is that, and, you know, we're, I mean, without putting too fine a plan in it, we do this now, you know, we run with robots all, all day. You know, I just took a load of laundry out of the washing machine, you know, I'm using a robot basically to get my clothes clean. Right. Um, and so we just, you know, this idea was that we are already um, running with robots. We're already using them to our advantage. You know, it will be even more um, mutual relationship 20 years from now. And, 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 and it was technically, I mean, we got, we, we actually, Jim, you, you probably remember better where, where the actual title came from. It was from a ref, reference from one of the books we really admired. Yeah, it was from um, uh, the Brynjolfsson uh, Mac, um, McAfee book, yes. Um, and so it was their image that rather than <clears throat> trying to control the robots um, or, on the other hand, being enslaved by them or, or marginalized by them, that um, you know, the image that they used was that um, if you think about uh, optimal chess playing, uh, that um, the best chess player, human chess player in the world will lose today to the best uh, chess algorithm. By the same token, the best chess algorithm in the world will lose to a combined team of a, you know, mid-level algorithmic chess uh, um, coupled with a human chess player. So we're better together than either is apart. So I understand you also, you know, talk about some real world uh, experimental high school programs in the course of the book. Could you give us an example of a, a highlight, if you will, of something going on right now that you see bends toward this this future? Yeah, I mean, you know, we actually um, the the examples we use in the book are not really technologically focused. Interestingly enough, I mean, I noticed that. Yeah, we we're um, we're very much um, I think in the book focused on um, 
new ways of seeing sort of the relationship between teachers and students and, and between students and the work they do. So, you know, one of the things that we were really interested in and focused on was this idea that, um, you know, it's the biggest change we need to, I think, think about is like students' relationship to their work and, and what the importance of their work is. Um, one of the examples that, that I liked was um, a school in um, Iowa <clears throat> called I- Iowa Big, which is this experimental high school. And the one of the students that we end up talking to is this student who basically, you know, kind of came from a traditional, you know, several thousand person four-year high school, didn't really like it, was doing fine, and was college bound. And then she sort of drops into this experimental school and realizes that she had no agency in this previous school and nobody trusted her and nobody really was focused on what she was interested in. Nobody really asked her the kind of the essential questions um, that were important to her. And um, the, the example that we use just to kind of cut this to the quick is that one of the very first questions that one of her teachers asked her was what makes you mad? And, and that opened up for her this sort of new world of, Oh my God, I'm mad with a a lot of things. And uh, so that was for her, at least um, this sort of uh, entryway into accessing what was important to her. And she ended up um, organizing this huge conference uh, about, you know, young women in careers and, she actually ended up um, cold calling the lieutenant governor of Iowa, who is now the governor, actually, and just, you know, just really doing some amazing stuff that I don't think she would have done otherwise. And so the model, what's the model or the mechanism that other that the high school did to get that to happen? I mean, the, they were just super focused on, you know, um, kids just actualizing themselves. I mean, you know, finding what they're interested in, finding what they um, you know, what they like to do and what the way they can contribute to the world um, and really relying on students themselves to figure it out. One, one of the things that Greg and I really emphasized and an example in the book as well is, is what I did at a school uh, that I ran, uh, Rocky Hill School, uh, was, you know, um, we were trying both in the book and and in that you know in that work with Rocky Hill trying to ask the question what is technology inflection going to mean for the role of humans in 10 to 20 years and the um the answer that we kept coming up with whether we were talking with educators or with some of the uh, best software engineers in the world um and and we did talk with some of the best software engineers in the world, um, was that we can't really know exactly what the capacity of AI is going to be in 10 to 20 years, but we can, with a high degree of confidence, say certain things that it won't be able to do yet. And if we look at that, then we can reverse engineer the human domain that looks like it's going to be pretty confidently safe uh, as part of the workforce um social sphere and so forth. And the domains that we kept seeing were the domains that are associated not with the necessarily the um, 
intellectual knowledge economy, but rather with the more compassionate, empathic economy. And so, um, in other words, we have, for the last century and a half in the knowledge economy, been educating our our students to become the repositors of information, right? Whether they're lawyers or doctors and so forth. And then somebody pays them a great deal of money to extract some of that knowledge from their heads. <clears throat> um, engineers, doctors, lawyers, that's now being reposited in algorithms increasingly. And that's only going to be more the case going forward so that the most intelligent, capable medical diagnostician, I predict, will be a computer somewhere in 20 years. Um, what is the role of the doctor then? The doctor's role is to be a knowledgeable interpreter of that algorithmic diagnosis to check it, to make sure that it's a reason, you know, that there wasn't a snafu, um, to make sure that there is uh, no bias, social bias in the outcome, and also, and most importantly, perhaps to um, to help then interpret that into a regimen for um, treatment and healing on the part of the patient in a human-connected, empathic way. How then will we train doctors? And that's the critical point for schools. Given that technological breakthrough that now the knowledge economy is going to be owned by the algorithms, how do we train humans to be the empathic, um, the empathic partners to that algorithm? And the, uh, the way that we do that is to train them toward... Um, um, knowledge sufficiency so that they can understand what the algorithm is doing and interpret it for the lay layperson, but empathic, uh, empathic uh, fluency. Now, if you think about that, and also creativity is another domain that we felt would be still uniquely human. So if you think about how you then translate that into, say, a K through 12 or higher education training, the doctors, for instance, will be trained to content literacy rather than content fluency and empathic and creative fluency. Uh, you would spend less time in high school training every student to take calculus and more time in portfolio types of um, collaborative endeavors to solve problems. After the break... Though these experts see great possibility for an innovative reboot of high school, they also see pitfalls ahead to watch out for. Stay with us. Honeywell Building Technologies is transforming the way every building operates to help improve the quality of life. School districts and higher ed campuses use Honeywell's hardware, software, and analytics to help create safe, efficient, and productive campuses. Schools today require a dynamic approach to managing the learning experience. And Honeywell can help ensure yours makes the grade. Did you know that the federal government has allocated billions of dollars to state and local government entities for building improvements? Funding is available for solutions such as safety and security, sustainability and energy management, cybersecurity, and more. Honeywell's team of funding experts can help identify funding opportunities that may be available to you to meet your school's needs. Visit www.honeywell.com to learn more about how Honeywell partners with schools 
to create energy-efficient, innovative, secure, and resilient campuses. Now back to the episode. This is a very optimistic 2040 that I think you've taken us to in the book. There's also forces that are, you know, kind of concerning to some educators about about some of the ed tech um, tools. And I know there's a longstanding concern at high school and college level of getting to a point where it's more of a course in the box, right? Or that the the tools that are um, that are built to, to educate. Yes, I, I see what you mean about ideally the human would be running alongside, but as you know, as tools are designed where you know to to really get the benefits, then the data needs to be in the system, and therefore everything has to be in the system, and therefore you know the students need to be clicking through materials inside of a you know a courseware. Um, you could you could also imagine a a more dystopian version of what happens from today with the AI and 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 robots robots software where it's there's less you know less diversity of teaching materials less kind of control by educators because of that and i guess i wonder how or what advice you have for kind of curbing some of those impulses that may be inherent in either the technology or the the market forces as as these things go that what's to stop that world from being kind of actually pushing aside educators more and being more because it might be cheaper, say. I guess I'll jump at that quickly. Um, I actually think that that's more likely. I think I think um, I think that we're uh, um, we're leaning heavily in the direction of the more dystopic outcome, uh, and um, rather pessimistic. Um, the um, The book was an action of will to assert. Here's a vision that could be with the exact same technology if we um, assert a kind of um, agency of uh, uh, an agency of padaya and um, and so you know I quote I, I did insert a quote from Antonio Gramsci in the book uh, pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will and um, that's my mantra Interesting. So to follow up on that, I mean, what, how, other than this paint a picture of what could be an alternative in a more practical level for educators out there right now, what, what tactics or what, how, what do you see as, as a way to prevent some of those impulses? I don't know that I have the answer to that uh, it, writ large. If I, if I did, I, I might be less pessimistic. I think that there are strong market and uh, social and historical forces that are driving us toward um, less desirable outcomes right now. Um, and so everybody has to play their part. My part was to try to present a vision. I'm not necessarily the person who sees the operational instrumentalizing answer. Um, uh, I feel that my role was more of a visionary that I appreciate that. Greg, do you have any thoughts on? And I guess, I guess as I, as I look at it, the kind of landscape, the ed tech landscape, I mean, the, the, the one thing that worries me the most is privacy. Um, I feel like we need to get privacy, right. Um, and I don't, um, 
I don't know what it will take to um, to make that happen other than just cataclysmic disaster. Um, you know, my sense is that's going to need to happen more broadly that we're going to have to, we're going to have to get to a point where people really um, uh, are hurting <laughs> in terms of the, the results of the ed tech that we create that, um, and, and I, you know, so I, I think we have, we will have to hit rock bottom before, you know, Jim's um, more uh, optimistic vision uh, starts to kick in. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I feel like, you know, educators as a group, um, you know, I mean, people say this endlessly, but, you know, they, I mean, they don't get into it to, to get rich. Um, they get into it to, they get into this business to, to make a difference. Um, and my feeling is that like once, uh, once teachers are maybe more comfortable and familiar with the technology um, and feel like they can, uh, you know, have a hand in its development, um, then that's, you know, to me, that's a, a positive thing. And that, that opens the possibility that, um, you know, they'll be in control. Um, I, uh, I mean, just very briefly, I mean, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about, you know, games and learning. And one of the things that I found really interesting was, and unexpected was how many uh, teachers just absolutely, you know, without planning this ahead of time, found themselves uh, designing games and like coding games and like building building games because this was basically their the way they saw the way forward. And so, you know, they somebody who had never coded anything in their life, all of a sudden they're, <clears throat> you know, they're building a digital game. Um, so if that's possible, I think anything is possible. If I, if I could just piggyback on that too, and I really like what Greg said, um, and it, it helps qualify what I was saying, and that is that um, I was in a, I was my doctoral work was in history, and so I was an historian before I was a futurist, and um, and it's all just timelines, right? And um, and you know my reading of history is that uh, the way changes happen are, is, is sort of a you know Cunian in the sense that um, the the dissonances build up and the insti- the the legacy institutions become more rigidified as the evidence against their continued efficacy grows <laughs> they become more rigidified rather than you know more malleable and more resilient until they collapse and what happens is that the the sort of um paradigms that were on the margins coming up with examples of alternatives in the years leading up to that collapse, then get a chance to rush into the mainstream, right? And so, you know, if you think about, I don't know, an example that comes to mind is that it, for years and years, the uh, governmental and educational and social systems of America were less and less effective against a rapidly industrializing society because they were inherited from an agrarian society, right? So in the early 1900s, you had all of these progressive ideas being experimented with in places like Wisconsin, but they weren't being effectively brought into federal legislation. Uh, then you had the um, then you had the collapse of the Great Depression, and FDR had all these ideas from progressivism that he could package into the New Deal. 
And I think that something like that hopefully will happen with education where um, the systems that we have for public education are becoming more rigidified, <laughs> not more experimental and resilient. Um, and they're becoming increasingly non-functional and I believe they're going to face some sort of systemic collapse. But what I do see that's hopeful is on the margins, and we, we highlight some of these in our chapters, there are all sorts of experiments that are going to provide new paradigms that can be adopted when that breach, when that opening really happens in society. Jim, I love, I love that, that thing you said at the beginning, I was a historian before I was a futurist. I think, I think that should be like your, uh, your Twitter bio. I like it's all just timelines. Um, but where we go in the timeline is not, uh, not known, you know, it's certainly not, um, preordained. So it's interesting, um, to see, to see these, the, the distance between what could be and, and what somehow has happened or is happening. And I wondered, I did want to talk about the pandemic, um, and the, the, you know, huge infusion of online learning and ed tech tools that were quickly instated in high schools and all levels of education during the COVID crisis. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I, this book, um, I think came out last year. It was clearly written, you know, probably, I don't know when, when exactly. Right. But some of it was probably even conceived of before the pandemic. Um, and so I guess, uh, yeah. So I guess I wonder now with the, with the view you've, you've lived through and witnessed since the writing of the book, what, what do you see as the the legacy or the 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 it let me ask that again what do you see as the biggest impact of the the emergency remote learning or what you know this time of covid in this timeline we're we're in on like the the innovation in education in high school well i mean i you know i i've been covering education long enough to have um, developed kind of a, a general rule, which is never underestimate the ability of a group of people to mess up a good thing. Um, I, I think we we as a group messed up a good thing. Um, I think the the pandemic really offered a really fabulous opportunity for educators to do something new and different and. Um, revolutionary, and I think we largely messed that up. <laughs> um, In what way? Give me, give me a quick version of why you say you say that. I mean, I think to me, to me, I mean, you know, you know, we're we're talking on Zoom here, and that's um, that represents an amazing victory. I mean, we can talk in three. I don't know where you are, Jeff, but you know, we're talking in three different states. I'm, I'm presuming um, as if we were sitting in the same room. Um, we're able to do it in, in a very frictionless way. Um, I, we had that opportunity from, you know, day one of the pandemic. Um, I think there were ways in which lots of different groups of students um, saw an, saw a real um, advantage uh, to, to being in a situation like this, um, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's, students being heard who never got heard in the classroom, whether it's students who had, you know, anxiety or some, some kind of um, uh, condition that made it harder for them 
to be in a, in a physical classroom and easier to be in a Zoom space. Um, all, we had all these possibilities. I think that I don't think a lot of teachers took advantage of. Um, and we certainly didn't as a system get this stuff straight. I mean, we certainly didn't do a very good job of um, maximizing the, the, the possibilities of, of something like Zoom um, or something like remote learning more broadly. Um, I, I, I do think, I mean, I, I was teaching college journalism at the time when the pandemic hit. And the, the first thing I realized was that, um, number one, I had lots of very bad habits as a teacher um, that I had to break instantly. Um, and number two, I, you know, my, the, the, um, the importance of kindness and patience and um, seeing every student's uh, possibilities individually just multiplied 10,000 times. Um, and I think probably good teachers did that really well and saw it immediately. But I think, I mean, my, I don't want to, you know, paint a broad brush here, but I, but I imagine a lot of teachers were just so burned out and scared and, you know, frustrated that they just kind of did whatever it took to get through the day. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure exactly if this answers your question, but, um, you know, there are ways we're learning to teach remotely um, that in, in some ways are even better than being in the classroom. Um, I mean, people, people have known this for, you know, 30, 40 years, and I feel like we haven't really taken advantage of those. Um, so I think it's a big missed opportunity. Yeah. Jim, do you have any thoughts on, I guess it's it's a little bit pandemic lessons, a little bit like where did pandemic put us? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think that in many ways, we're all still uh, living through trying to, you know, digest and establish the answers to that. Um, I think that there are going, I commented the other day that there are going to be hundreds of dissertations that are written about the pandemic uh, and its implications. But um, a couple of salient points that really jump out at me. One is um, we we do mention in the book, though it was written before the pandemic, that the, the types of tools that are becoming available to teachers for classroom use have the potential, uh, even now, let alone when they're even more powerful in a few years, but even right now, have the potential to liberate teachers from some of the um, more onerous, repetitive, unimaginative aspects of teaching uh, and um, and also um, uh, allow them to, even, even with a classroom of 25 students, be able to individuate uh, the teaching and the um, the the interaction with students in a much more personalized way to the student's learning style. So this is the potential of the tools. But what um, what is also very possible is that districts under you know con- budget constraints and so forth will say, oh, if teachers are able to spend less time grading, for instance. <clears throat> then rather than they're having the same number of students and being able to give more personalized attention to those students, let's give them twice as many students. Um, and so we'll lose the opportunity to be able to enhance the human inter- interactivity and the individuation that these tools uh, could potentially allow in the classroom. Um, and that's, I think, the danger with all of this, that the pandemic showed us that um, the children today 
in the digital world and in an increasingly chaotic world that they inhabit are at greater need than I'm sure my generation was to have um, a meaningful, nurturing, underscore nurturing human contact with all adults that they can possibly have. And so in I guess in some way your your book was predicting sort of more human contact, but I feel like a lot of it was maybe around academics. But what I feel like we're seeing in reporting here at EdSurge so much is that it's really also social emotional learning, um, mental health, um, socialization. These are the things that we're hearing from classroom educators at the K-12 level and college, frankly, of the need coming out of this social isolation, trauma, stress, health crisis. Absolutely. And and in our book, the students aren't alone with the technology. It isn't an atomizing or an alienating interface. It's a facilitator for very human interactions where the teacher and fellow students are around them and they're interacting with a holograph of um of you know a great author like Hemingway. Um and so it's a more convivial human interface uh, rather than a sort of isolated, uh, atomized um, isolation within, uh, you know, within a computer screen. One of one of the things I want to just jump in with, and actually Jim makes me think of it. You know, the one of the chapters at the very near the very end of the book is is this this kind of crazy chapter where a humanities class is. Um, basically interacting with a, a uh, digital version of uh, uh, Hemingway um, and, you know, literally is like asking him questions and it's a sort of holographic um, representation. And what we explain in the course of the chapter is that um, this is a basically just a digital tool built by students who input all of his writings, all of his letters and all of his correspondence and his magazine pieces and his novels. And, you know, and the idea is that you can access it as if you were doing a Google search, but how, how much cooler if you can just, um, you know, sync it with a, with a 3d image of Hemingway and query it in real time. Um, uh, And to me, the, the lesson is as much as anything is not wow isn't technology amazing, but wow what if students did this, you know what not if um, you know this teacher created this and you know uh, you know brings the students into the room and says okay this is something I built kids, um, but in the, in the chapter we we specifically explicitly say you know students created this thing. Um, because they had the facility to to be able to to, to you know to bring the the words and the the technology together, um, and I think that's it's, it's something we don't talk about enough. I think you know when we think about technology, it's almost always you know teachers buying something off the shelf, right? Yeah, it, it's interesting that you. Oh, go ahead, Jim. No, no, I, I just think it's I think it's a missed opportunity. Um, if if it's always you know if it's always a product. Um, we'll never get where we need to be. One of the things uh, that I liked about um, our example of using a hologram 
uh, too, is, is that it seems to me that we're fundamentally a narrative-driven species and a conversational species. And, you know, for 200,000 years or however long you want to push back the rise of Homo sapiens or at least hominids, um, we were an oral species. And then about 4,000 years ago, with the invention of writing in, in Egypt, we started to supplant that by increasingly becoming a text-based species. Uh, and that's only been for a few thousand years. Um, very powerful tool. You know, we actually, we actually date what we call civilization from the invention of writing to, you know, to indicate how powerful that tool is. But now, I think with the technology, think about TED Talks and so forth, we're becoming again, we're becoming again a conversationalist, oral, oral species. Um, but we're starting to get some of the best of both because we have the immediacy of uh, having somebody present in conversational ways to us the distillation of a lifetime of learning, i.e. a TED Talk in 15 minutes. Um, but it's also preserved. You know, one of the reasons we know what Plato thought is because he wrote it down, right? And pre-literature, uh, pre, pre, uh, we don't know what people thought so much. So now we can preserve it, uh, and yet it's more conversational. Um, I think as educators, the technology is going to increasingly allow us to, in fact, to do, I think we're going to be able to do what we presented in the book, which is to feed into an AI uh, bot everything that we have from Hemingway, and it will generate a little hologram that the students can query as if it's a live person next to them. That's absolutely fascinating. And um, in a sense, bringing us back to the type of species we've always been, where we sit around the campfire, but now we have infinite access to information that can be generated. I find that very positive. What I see as the challenge is that there's something lost in every medium. And um, one of the great powers of textuality was that it tended to engender um, logical linearity of rational analysis. And that is lost in the juxtaposition of give and take in conversation. And um, so how do we inculcate that in students? Because I think that as citizens, they very much need that uh, to be effective citizens. So I, I see opportunities and challenges um, but we're at a liminal point. Yeah, I, I just want to say, if we have time, like one other thing that strikes me, which is that one of the things we're really seeing, especially at the college level, but I think you can argue at the high school level to some extent, is with all these tools and with the online learning phase that we've gone through, I feel like there's a skepticism of why do I even need this? I can just go get it on my own of education at all. And so even though your example, Greg, is is magical of these students kind of doing this kind of project where they're figuring out the Hemingway thing, I feel like in a way that's gone to an extreme of like people of all types um, want, were, uh, questioning, people of all types questioning the kind of need to even be in a formal education system, which seems like it has its own um, incredible repercussions potentially for and, and a lot of negative downsides of, you know, how do you convince it's, it's not only it's, so it's back to that narrative, the narrative of the story we tell ourselves currently includes, of course, you'll go to high school and finish, or at least there's this huge public expectation and then even college. But what if, what if this breaks down that expectation with 
in a way that that uh, even you know that because of the bots and because of the, the tools convincing people they don't need this i i think that's always been there um you know i, I just heard uh, i was i was at a, a event the other night friend Leibowitz, the great you know humorist storyteller um gave a talk the other night and uh one of the things she said was, you know, she's kind of famously a high school dropout. Um, she was actually kicked out of high school and um, never went to college. And she said, one of the things she said was, you know, why do you have to go to college? She said, if it's $60,000 a year, think about how many books you could buy with $60,000. Broadcast that over four years. Read as many books as you possibly can. Think about the education you'll get. I mean, obviously, it's an incomplete idea, but... Um, you know, it's kind of a seductive idea, right? Um, that's a lot of books. Um, I, so I don't think it's a new idea. I, I think it's, to me, I think we're making it more seductive um, for two reasons. Number one, because the technology is amazing and always getting better. Um, and number two, the cost of college is nuts. Um, we're, we're making that, we're making it such a barrier to entry that anyone with even a, like a half-baked idea, I think, has an advantage over, you know, some expensive liberal arts college. Um, I mean, Harvard and Yale and all those guys, you know, will always have their like value proposition or whatever it is, you know, just because of the. Right. We're not talking about Harvard and Yale. Right. They, they educate a very small slice of the American people. But everybody else, you know, you're, you are competing with sometimes wacky ideas. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I, I do think that, that colleges are not making it any easier on themselves. I don't know. Jim, Jim might have some, some more coherent ideas than I do about this. It just reminds me of, I, I was thinking of this just the other day because I read an, an interview with Brian Eno, I guess it was yesterday in the New York times. And I was reminded of this um, dinner, dinner I was at, at the home of the um, chancellor of Oxford um, like 15 years ago. I, the reason I think of it is because Brian Eno was also at, at the table. And um, But anyway, so I, I was having this dinner 15 years ago with the Chancellor of Oxford one evening, and um, he asked me my thoughts on the future of higher education, and I said that I think that, I think that the uh, predominance, if not 80%, of um, higher educational institutions are facing an existential threat. And that they will cease to exist in a generation if they don't change uh, radically. And his rather insouciant response was, well, I think you're probably correct, but people will always want to come to Oxford to chat. <laughs> I, I almost don't know how to interpret that in, in, in a practical way. Um, well, I think I think one of the things is that the Oxfords and the Harvards are... Um, are so wealthy and established that they're not subject to the demand curve whatsoever. But everybody else is, and they're going to have to change in dramatic and fundamental ways. So you still believe that um, that was 15 years ago, but do you, today you feel the same? Absolutely. And they're all changing as dramatically as they can. When I was, when I was, um, when I was a college president, I was invited down to the Brookings Institute for a, um, you know, a closed session discussion about uh, some of the new paradigms that are available for universities and colleges. And there were some very, very large and substantial and established colleges represented in that room of about 
40 of us. Um, and interestingly, one of the presentations from Michelle Weiss talked about what's happening at the community college level in terms of their innovation and their ability to work with uh, corporations to, um, to build the types of training pipelines that the corporations need for their future talent pool. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the representatives in some places, college presidents, and in other cases, it was CFOs from these major universities were virtually salivating, asking, how can we get a piece of that, but at, at a higher, you know, four-year level? Um, how can we get a piece of that corporate money uh, to create um, pipelines to their future their future workforce? Um, so they're desperately looking for relevance and new models for being able to respond to the forces of change today. Well, I think I might leave it at that. I, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate both of you sharing these thoughts um, jumping off of this book. Thank you. Thanks so much. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Every week, we look at how education is changing in these rapidly changing times and the fascinating questions at the heart of the learning process. If you like the show, we hope you'll spread the word about the EdSurge Podcast on social media or tell a colleague or friend. I'm proud to share that the EdSurge Podcast recently made a list of the best education podcasts out there. We are in the top 25 according to Feedspot. They put us at 21. You can help us move up these charts by giving us a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a minute to do that if you can. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung, as long as that exists. I also have a website, jeffyoung.net. Music this episode was by Rowan Jane and editing by Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.